This morning, um, I want to talk about something which I guess it's something I've been looking at for, for a little while, but it's been something I, I have returned to recently to, to reinvestigate my, my thoughts on this biblical topic. There is, uh, there is in, in the Bible a class of character uh, who makes their appearances through, throughout the entirety of the scriptures, right, from, from start to finish. Uh, this, this person turns up for the first time in the book of Genesis and makes his final appearance in the epistles of Hebrews, James and Peter. And uh, he makes regular appearances in the Exodus, uh, gets plenty of sprinklings right throughout the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, gets uh, a lot of repeat mentions throughout the prophets, major and minor, and even makes a few cameo appearances in the words of Christ. This character that I want to talk about this morning uh, goes by the name of the Stranger. And he's known by, known by many names, um, depending on what translation you might have or what version you're reading or what verse of the Bible. The stranger, the foreign, the alien, um, the pilgrim, the sojourner, whatever, whatever word it is that you find, it's all talking about the same idea. It's talking about the stranger, the foreigner, someone who is the outsider, someone who comes from another place and who finds themselves in a place that is not their home. Uh, and this character is, is one that, as I've said, turns up right throughout the scriptures. And I want to have a little bit of a look at, you know, a, a bit of a little biblical survey this morning at this widespread topic. I cannot pretend that in the, you know, 40 odd minutes that I've got, I can do it justice or I can do it, you know, look into it with anywhere near the depth that it deserves. For some people that have looked at this before, there's going to be some favourite verses that I won't even touch at. There's going to be some concepts that don't get a mention. I apologise for that, but you'll just have to get over it. Um, I don't have a chance at doing it properly, so I'm just going to look at one little aspect of this idea. Who is the stranger and why should we care about him? So I'm not going to start at the beginning and I'm not going to start at the end. I'm going to begin in the middle, uh, at some, in some of the verses that we find in the prophets where this character turns up. And when we see him, he's nearly always grouped, well, not nearly always, but a lot of the time he's grouped with a couple of other classes of character. Jeremiah 7 is a good example of that, if you could just turn that up. Okay, in Jeremiah 7, and I'm going to try and skip through some of these verses uh, relatively quickly so I can get to the the meat of what I want to talk about this morning. Jeremiah 7, verses uh, 5 and 6. Now, this is uh, in the middle of, um, I guess it's one of... one of the darkest chapters of Jeremiah from some perspective. It's, it's utterly depressing. But uh, the, a lot of the book of Jeremiah is, is, a, uh, is a rant from Jeremiah about how terrible the people were. And, and this chapter is no exception. And one of the things that, one of the things that he says on behalf of God is, is in verses 5 and 6. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. So this is in the closing stages of the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has already gone. We're in the final days of, of the kingdom of Judah uh, during this, this prophet Jeremiah who presided over the last few, uh, the, the period of the reigns of the last few kings of Judah. And he's saying to the people, he'd already given several prophecies to say, you are going into captivity. Those prophecies, in fact, had been delivered a long time before, even, uh, even by Isaiah. He's, he's saying it's going to happen. But here the promise is, 
If you change things, you will not go into captivity. What are the things they needed to change? They needed to do a whole bunch of stuff. Start actually being a people of justice and stop oppressing the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. If you're reading from the King James Version, it's the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. There's these three categories of people that are the people that Jeremiah mentions here that the nation of Judah needed to stop oppressing. All right, So that's Jeremiah. In Zechariah, there's uh, something very similar that we find. In Zechariah, also in chapter 7, and this is uh, a fair bit later, a good hundred years or so later. Um, Zechariah chapter 7, verses 5 and 6 once again. No, that's not right. Um, verses 9 and 10. Zechariah from verse 8, um, chapter 7, verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So there we have them once again, the widow, the fatherless, and the sojourner or the stranger. And this time they're grouped in with this extra little category of the poor, which helps us to understand a little bit more about why it is that these three categories of people keep coming up um, in in the same breath. Malachi chapter 3 is another one. And by the way, this is just a little snapshot. There's a lot more that mention these categories of people. Malachi chapter three, verse verse five, and this is of course, you know, the pretty much the last the last book of the Old Testament, with perhaps the exception uh, of Nehemiah chapter thirteen. Uh, Malachi three, verse five. And uh, in the midst of this, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely but also against these, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, which is probably familiar to anyone who's just been at study week and looking at the book of James, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. There we've got him once again. This, this stranger turns up. And who is he grouped with? The widow and the fatherless. And so we find this, this uh, you know, little trinity, if you will, a grouping of of three categories of people that keep getting mentioned. They keep coming up in the same breath right throughout the Old Testament. In fact, I I did a little bit of a look and um, it was extremely imperfect, uh, but I found at least 12 passages where you get these three categories of people mentioned. So why do they always come up? Why are they always mentioned? Why are they always mentioned together? Um, There's just one more I want to look at now because we're going to spend a little while looking at some chapters in in the law. Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 24, there's one one final mention that I want to look at here. Deuteronomy 24, and here it is enshrined in the the, the civil and religious law that the the Jews were supposed to and expected to obey, that had been handed to them uh, by God. And here in Deuteronomy 24, verse 17, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. There they are again. The sojourner or the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. Do not pervert the justice due to them. Uh, and so once again, we find these three categories of people. Why is it that they keep coming up? Why are they always grouped together? And if you think about it for a little while, the reason that these are the three categories, and it's also the poor, it's also the hired worker, it's also, you know, a couple of others that get thrown in there every now and then. 
But what these groups of people have in common is that they are the disadvantaged. They are the marginalised. They are the people who were on the edges of their society. They are the people that had no one to look out for them. They are the people that did not have the support network that you and I might take for granted. This is why they keep coming up and this is why God keeps on saying to his people, you have to not oppress these guys. They are defenceless. They don't have anyone to back them up. And because they were the stragglers, because they were on the edges, they made easy targets and they were easy to forget and they were easy to look past. And so God always draws attention to them and he keeps drawing the eyes of the people back to say, I want you to look after these people and I want you to look after what is best for them. They couldn't necessarily even do anything to change their situation. The fatherless were in trouble because they didn't have anyone who was going to go out and you know, and work the fields or get a job and earn money to support them. The widows were in a, in a uh, bad situation for much the same reason. They had children to look after. Uh, they, had, you know, they had a house to run and all that sort of stuff. They had no spare time, but they had no husband that could go out and once again work to support them. Why the stranger then? Why is it, what, what is it about being a foreigner that groups the foreigner in the time of the ancient nations of Israel and Judah with these people, the the fatherless and the widow, that seem to have absolutely nothing. Why does the stranger get mentioned? Um, And for that, I think we need to think a little bit about what it is to be an outsider and particularly what it is to be an outsider in the context of the ancient nation of Israel. And we have to think about why it is that people actually upped and moved from one place to another in ancient times. The vast majority of the cases, and I'm just going to list off a couple of cases that I can think of from the Old Testament, the vast majority of of cases where people become strangers, they do so because they are running from something. They are in trouble. So here's a a couple of situations. Uh, We have Jacob goes into Egypt and takes his entire family. Why? Because there's a famine in the land and he has nothing. And he knows that down in Egypt, Joseph is in control and Joseph can help him out. So Jacob is is at very risk of him, his family, his children, his grandchildren, probably his great-great-children, great-great-grandchildren starving in the land. In response to this famine, they up and they go down and they live in Egypt. This is the first case. The next case that I can think of, Moses in Egypt in, in the early chapters of Exodus kills a man. He becomes a fugitive. He runs from the land of Egypt and into the land of Midian. And while he's in the land of Midian, he gets married, he has a son, and he calls his son Gershom, which means refugee. And he says, I am a stranger. I have been a stranger in a strange land. Um, So this is another case of why people go away. Uh, We have the Israelites who leave Egypt to escape the oppression. So they're strangers in the land of Egypt, they're copying it down there and they leave that place to go back and they, they call out to God in the depths of their affliction. Why? Because they are suffering and they leave there to escape from that oppression and take up their position in the land. In the book of Ruth, Elimelech takes his family. Now whether or not he did the right thing is up for a matter of debate. The question that we're talking about here is why did Elimelech go? He picks up his family, his his wife and his children and he goes into Moab. Why? Because there's a famine and he needs to escape it. He needs to find a place where he can support his family. Um, Coming to the New Testament, Joseph, Mary and Jesus flee to Egypt 
from Judea. Why? To escape the threat from Herod. In old times, the reasons that people moved from country to country is not the way we do it. It's not for a change. It's not because we like that place better. It's not because we prefer the climate. People did these things out of desperation. And when they found themselves in this other country, they found themselves in this other land, they spoke a different language, they looked different, they had different cultural customs, they had no support network, they had no friends, they had no one that was going to look after them and they would have been treated with suspicion from the word go, they would have been ostracised by the society and it was difficult, it was incredibly hard. The reason the stranger is grouped with the widow and the fatherless is for all of these reasons. Because they are the people on the edges, because they are the people that are most at risk of, of suffering from, from economic hardship uh, and because uh, they are the people that really needed uh, other people to look out for them. These are the groups of people who are dependent upon the beneficence of others to help them out. Now, the verses that we've looked up so far are all phrased in a particular way. They say, do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't recall the last time that I particularly oppressed someone. Um, I, I, I can't remember when that would have been. I, I've never scammed anyone in any kind of a business transaction. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've never had any kind of legal case where I've been trying to steal land from the widow or any of that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know when it's happened. Right? It's very easy for me to not oppress the stranger, the fatherless and the widow in that sense. Okay? It's, it's quite easy to, to obey that negative. But it had to go further than that. And under the law, there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of commands which, which asked the people to go that little bit further than that. And while we're here in Deuteronomy uh, 24, I want to read from a couple more of the other provisions that were built into the law of Moses on behalf of these three categories of people, the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. Verse, uh, verse 19, so it's just after the one in verse uh, that we've already read in verse, verse 17 says this, When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. Why not? It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So, this is probably a law that you've read before, this idea, and, and, and Jesus sometimes uh, occasionally references this in the New Testament as well. But this, this idea is you go out there, you reap the field the first time, any of the stuff which is left over in the field from your, from your first pass... That's it. You don't get another go. And the reason that you don't get another go is because all of those leftovers, God says, those are a provision for these neglected classes of people. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure people found their way around this by just coming up with better ways of being efficient the first time around. But um, the law was there and it was a law that was in place to remind people that they had a need to look outside their own circumstances and to look out for the marginalised and uh, and the oppressed and the disadvantaged. And lest you missed it the first time and lest you thought, well, this is great because, um, you know, I'm not actually a wheat farmer. You know, I'm, I don't grow wheat. Um, I've got vineyards, so I don't have to worry about that one. Um, I've got olive trees, I don't have to worry about that one. Well, um, just in case you missed it the first time, verse 20 says, when you beat your olive trees, you don't get to go back and have another go. For exactly the same reason. The leftover is for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. And um, if you were neither a wheat farmer nor an olive farmer, but you said, well, that's great because I don't have to worry about this because I've got vineyards... Um, Verse 21, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you're not allowed to go back over it. You only get one go. Why? It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. 
so there was no excuse, right? And, and it wasn't like you could then turn around and say, well, I don't, you know, I don't have vineyards either, or you know, whatever it is that I do, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a sheep, you know, person, so I don't have to worry about the. The point is, no matter what you do, you've got to look after these people on the edges, and God makes this abundantly clear. And, he, and, th- and this kind of, this kind of instruction keeps coming up in in Deuteronomy 26. We get a very, very similar uh, kind of a command, uh, verse, verse 12. Oh, sorry, verse 11 in Deuteronomy 26. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you in your house, you, the Levite, and the stranger who is among you. When you've finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to who? The Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. God's saying that you're not allowed to let anyone go hungry. You are not allowed to let anyone go hungry. Look out for these people. And he groups another category in here, the Levite. Why? Because they had no lands. They had no lands to farm and God said, well, you've got to look after them. And they're grouped in here, of course, once again with the stranger. So yeah, there's a lot of these different references. We could spend all day reading up on these references where God says, I want you to look after these people on the edges. Um, and it's not simply enough to not oppress them. You've got to make sure that they're actually catered for. So it's it's not a case of not doing bad things. It's a case of God saying, I want you to do good things for these groups of people. In Leviticus chapter 19, um, it even takes it well beyond this idea of, of looking after... Uh, oh, I seem to have got the wrong verse here. Um Leviticus chapter 19, ah, there it is, verse, verse 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. There's that negative command, right? You're not allowed to do the wrong thing by him. You're not allowed to oppress him. You're not allowed to take advantage of him when the stranger sojourns with you in your land. But, verse 34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, there's an important little linkage there between God, what, what the experiences of the nation of Israel in the past and the Israelites as they were, were suffering and oppressed in Egypt and the commands that God gives them for the way they are to treat people who were in, who were in their situation. Um, but the important aspect of this is Part A of the command, do him no wrong, don't do the wrong thing by him, don't oppress him, don't take advantage of him, don't abuse him, don't do any of those terrible things. Part B of the command is love him as yourself. Now that is a command which under the law was associated with the stranger. Now that is a positive thing. I want you to love this. Now that is an active idea. That is, that is something which is, uh, something which is a, an active command. Now this, this for you and I is a little bit a little bit strange, right? Because we live in 21st century Australia. We're not in Old Testament, Old Testament Israel. We're not, we're not in the land. Our society is a very, very different society to what it was back then. And it may be easy for us to think that we don't actually have to do anything in this regard. Hey, we don't even, you know, we're, we're not even adherents to the law of Moses in that sense. What we're learning here is some important principles about the way God wants us to think about the disadvantaged. But when we look around our society, we say, well, you know, hey, the government does this stuff anyway, right? We've, we live in a, a social democracy, right? There's, 
There's pretty well-established welfare systems. The people who, who don't have a job and can't get a job uh, are catered for by the government. They're, they're, they're given welfare. Um, and major groups of disadvantaged people, like the disabled and, and, uh, and, and like the stranger and all these sorts of people, are taken care of by the government. And we might say, therefore say, well... Um, Hey, there's, you know, what really can I do? I pay my taxes. I've done my bit. Um, unless anyone slipped through the, you know, the government cracks, there are sort of major charities right throughout Australia that are, you know, taking care of the people that slip through the cracks. So you've got, you've got your Vinnies and you've got your Lifeline and all these sorts of charities that are looking after the people uh, and, and making provision for the people who might not be taken care of in the best way by the government. So, to a certain extent, in 21st century Australia, it's it's very, very different to what it was. Uh, when you're living under the law, and you might say, "Well, you know, really, what else can I do? This is this is not my responsibility." And if we want to look overseas, um, it's very easy to, to do something like pick up a credit card, give some money to Oxfam or World Vision or any one of these massive, massive charities that are looking after poor people and disadvantaged people in other continents, and say, "Well, I've done my bit now, right? I've, you know, I'm, I'm obeying these principles. I'm doing what I can to, to look after the disadvantaged." The difference between all of those things uh, and acknowledging that these things are sort of done by proxy uh, and what is being said here is that what the law expected of the people was very hands-on. To love the stranger is something which is really difficult to do from a distance. And we see that particularly in some of the way that uh, some of the ways in which the laws were codified. And you might find, for example, um, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 16... Um, and by the way, I'm not criticising any of those any of those ventures that uh, that do do quite amazing things to look after the disadvantaged. Uh, I'm just saying that it doesn't necessarily fall under this this category of love the stranger. And what we find in Deuteronomy 16 is a really interesting one because Deuteronomy 16 is uh, tells us about the the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, and or the, the Feast of Weeks or whatever it says in your uh, in, in your version. So the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, all these sorts of ideas, right? Now what happens is that there, there, were, there were massive national parties, right? There were massive national holidays, times to celebrate, time to have fun, time to, to, share, uh, to share your, your life with your family, to relax a little bit and to enjoy and appreciate the blessings that God had given you. And what we find in this law is it's phrased in a really interesting way. Verse, verse 9, for example, you shall count, count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks uh, from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain, then you shall keep the feast of weeks. Uh, and you shall give as the Lord God blesses you. Now, what were they going to do? They were going to rejoice before the Lord their God in verse 11, and then it lists the people that were going to be participating in this feast. Which categories of people? You and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant. So if, lest you think that this is just a family time, just a time to gather around the people that you automatically love, right, without even having to try, right, you've got to include the hired help, right? You've got to include your employees as well. So get your servants involved, your male servant and your female servant. And not just that, reach out to the Levites, right, because they don't necessarily have to look after them. Um, and not just the Levites who's within your town, but bring in the stranger, the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. 
Now this is the way that God said that this Feast of Weeks was to be celebrated. Verse 13, you shall keep the Feast of Booth seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. So they you know, gathered in all the stuff. They've got this abundance of food and how is it going to work? You're going to rejoice in the feast. And he lists off the same categories of people. It's not just about your family. It's about your hired help. It's about the employees. It's about the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. Now why is this? And the reason this is, 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 is I think simple human dynamics. What happens when you have a party? What happens when you have a celebration? What happens is that there's some people who are left out. And the people who are left out are the people who don't have anyone to look after them. It's the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. It's the people who don't have a support network. It's the people who don't necessarily have abundance that they can use to celebrate these feasts. It's the people who are doing everything they can just to survive. And God's saying, I want you to make sure that no one is left out in this feast. Bring them all in. Make sure that everyone is included and you can all rejoice together before the Lord your God. So what we find is that the instructions in the law about looking after the stranger, the fatherless and the widow were not just about not doing the wrong thing. They were about loving the stranger and that meant personal, hands-on contact. That meant meeting not just their economic needs, but also their social needs. And the people were expected to, to reach out and make sure that people felt included. Now there is, and you may or may not be aware of this, there is actually a, um, a, a really spectacular example of this that's going on in Perth at the moment. Um, there is there is a brother who is, uh, and I believe I, I apologise if I don't have all the details uh, exactly correct on this. I only heard about it during the week, but there is a brother who is attending Gosnells and has been for for some time. Um, and this is all uh, news which is out in the open, as far as I'm aware. Um, he's an Afghan brother, and he escaped from Afghanistan um, into Pakistan. From Pakistan, uh, made his way to Indonesia. From Indonesia caught a boat, um, paid, a, paid a people smuggler, uh, caught a boat to Australia and uh, has gone through the, uh, the process of, of seeking asylum, has received a temporary protection visa um, and uh, however it is, I believe it was Tim Galbraith in, uh, in India that ended up contacting a brother at, uh, a brother at Yokon about this who has gone about looking after this brother that's an absolutely amazing thing which is happening here. He's attending Gosnells. He's, and, 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 I, and I guess what I find really encouraging about this is, is on three different levels. That A, this, this brother who is a stranger and in particularly desperate circumstances, he doesn't, doesn't have his wife and children with him. They're back there. He's, he's doing everything he can to look after them, but he's not exactly going to put them in a, in a, a life and death situation on a boat. He's doing what he can... To, to look after them. He's doing what he can. In a desperate situation, he said, I need help. Now, here's what's happening. Three amazing things. Firstly, um, it's great that the Christadelphian community has stepped up to meet his needs here in Australia. It's incredible that, uh, that he's getting his social and spiritual needs met uh, through, uh, through his contact with the Ecclesia. 
I know for a fact that some Christadelphians right now are doing what they can to find work on behalf of this, so they're doing what they can to meet his economic needs as well and uh, and therefore help him to get the money to support himself and do what he can to bring his wife and child out of a terrible situation as well. And the other thing to acknowledge in all of this is that it is a fantastic thing uh, that we live in a country where the Australian government saw a person in a desperate situation who said, I need help, and the government said, OK, we'll help you out. And I think we can look at this situation and say, this is a good thing. This is a good thing which is happening here. There are those in Australia who will call him and others like him a Q-jumper. And I'm very thankful that the Christadelphians are not among them. This topic and this idea has been made into something controversial in, 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 the, Australian media, in the Australian media of recent date. But for Bible believers, there doesn't actually have to be anything complicated about it at all. It's simply a question of, oh, hey, for most of us, we don't actually have to do anything at all. It's just a question of whether we are happy for a little portion of our taxes to be spent looking after someone like this. And our individual response to this kind of a situation could be a very good test of whether or not we are willing to let simple Bible teaching overcome our prejudices. So... We've talked a little bit about what the Bible says about these categories of people, the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, and the need to look after them. Why did God emphasise this so strongly and what was it about this that meant so much to the nation of Israel? And this is where I want to come back to that quote that we read before. I want you to love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, there's another verse which brings a little bit more about that out. In Exodus chapter 23... We find this, Exodus chapter 23, another comment about the way it is that the children of Israel are supposed to feel about the strangers among them. Exodus 23 verse 9, you shall not oppress a stranger. Why? You know the heart of a stranger, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You know the heart of the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, I want us to think about what is being said here. God says, I want you to not oppress these people and I'm going to link this command to your experiences. You know what it is like to be a stranger. Now, what did it mean for the children of Israel to be a stranger in the land of Egypt? It meant oppression. It meant slavery. It meant, uh, meant marginalisation. It meant victimisation. It meant an absolutely shocking life. And God says to them, you know what it is like. You have been there. So do not make anyone else feel like that. You know the heart of the stranger. This is a direct appeal to the emotional response of the children of Israel. You know what it is like. And this is, uh, and this is the, the really fascinating about this because what God is appealing here, to here are these emotional human qualities of empathy and sympathy. Now, these are, these are commands that we don't have time to look at right now, but if you think about the way that Jesus phrases this in the New Testament, he says, well, you shall love, love your neighbour as yourself. But the other one in, in Luke chapter 30, uh, in Luke 6, verse 31, is um, the old, you know, we're going to phrase it in, the, in, in the, the phrasing that is easy for us to understand. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. That is about empathy. And what, what Jesus is asking for us there is saying, if you would not want to be treated in that particular way, then why on earth would you treat someone else that way? 
Now that's what is built into this idea in Exodus chapter 23. You know the heart of the stranger. You know what it is like to be on the edges. So why would you make someone else feel that way? And one of the... I'm going to tell a little story about um, my, my teenage years at this stage to try and, I guess, sum up one of the unfortunate uh, elements of human nature. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't have a really easy time as a teenager. I was uh, particularly, uh, you know, um, nerdy, if you will. Um, I looked strange, uh, didn't have a lot of social skills, uh, I got no idea what state my personal hygiene was in at the time. Um, it, it wasn't pretty. It really wasn't. And um, so I didn't have a lot of friends. Um, I was I was actively pushed aside by people. I was actively, uh, you know, when I went from primary school into high school, I was actively rejected by my old friendship set, who apparently <coughs> believed that I wasn't good for them anymore. Um, and I was pulling them down and whatever it was, right? So there was this it was really really terrible times for me. It was really really difficult. Um, it, there was probably a few of us that were in that circumstance. And so for a long time, basically for about three or four years, I pretty much had one friend, maybe two. And it wasn't easy for any of us. Um, but with time, like, hey, people grow up a little bit, right? And, uh, and with time and, 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 you know, and you grow into yourself and you get a bit more confident and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, with time, the, the memories of that fade away. And, and what happened was that our little group of rejects and... Uh, and losers um, gradually sort of picked up as we went some of the other rejects and losers, right? So all of the oddballs and and the strange people um, that came to school somehow ended up being adopted by our, our little weird group, right? Now that sounds all great and wonderful, right? Um, except the problem was that by this stage... Um, I was actually starting to make friends with people, right? And I distinctly remember, and I was actually, you know, starting to get ahead socially, and it was all going okay, right? And I distinctly remember one day looking at some of these particularly odd characters that, hanging, that were hanging out with us and thinking, what are these losers doing here? Like, they're, you know, they're just making it hard for me. And, I, like, how, how on earth did I get from that state? How did I go from feeling terrible about being so profoundly rejected by my social group to becoming a person who responded in that way to people who were in exactly the situation that I had been. How does that happen? And I guess the way that happens is because that's who people are, right? That's one of the things that we do. We visit the sins that have been committed against us upon other people. We don't do it deliberately. We just do it because we're neglectful and because we're optimising for ourselves and because... We're just trying to get ahead. The reason that God put these laws and built these laws into the law of Moses is precisely for that reason. And the reason that we find right throughout, you know, not just sort of not, not just Jeremiah and Zechariah and Malachi, but right throughout the books of Isaiah and pretty much the entirety of the New Testament, and then subsequently in the New Testament, is these reminders to go and visit the fatherless and the widow and do all these things is because we don't do it naturally. And the scary thing about it is we don't do it naturally even if we have been a victim of that kind of treatment in the past ourselves. And that's, that's what I find to be really, really sad about this. This major problem of humanity that so often we, become, we can become guilty of the sins which are committed against us. But here the lesson in Exodus chapter 23 is something different to that. 
having received foul treatment from others, we have to learn to be compassionate and giving with our time and attention. And if you or I or anyone in this hall knows what it is like to feel different, then we have to do everything that we can to make sure that we limit that feeling in other people. We have to do everything that we can to reach out to the people that are perhaps on the edges or in need of a little bit of love and attention and care. Treat them as you would have people treat you. So that's um, that's nice, and uh, and it's something that I think we can at least acknowledge that is something which is worth aspiring to. And I want to connect this to just a couple more ideas before I finish. Where does all this come from? God makes these commands. He said, okay, I don't, I don't want people to be on the edges. I don't want people to, to be neglected. I want people to be looked after. Why does, God, why does God ask that? And I guess the, there's a really, really simple answer to that. And the really, really simple answer to that is because that's who God is. And we find this while we're here in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 21. Uh, I just want to read two verses to make this point. I don't, think it's a, I don't think it's a difficult one to make. Again, you could find bazillions of verses through the scriptures that say this. Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And then God goes on to punish all sorts of terrible retribution. The point is this. God hears their cries and God responds to them. We should want this kind of treatment for people, not because it makes us feel good, but because we're responding to the character of God. God hears their cries and he burns. When you see this happen, does it make you burn? Deuteronomy chapter 10 is a pretty similar one. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses verses 17 and 19. Who is God? For the Lord your God, in Deuteronomy 10 verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God loves these people. And if God loves these people, then so should we. It's as simple as that. God loves them, executes justice and gives them food and clothing. And it could well be that the way in which God does these things, the way in which God meets these needs, is through people like you and I. So what do we find then when we think about what we're doing here on a Sunday? What do we see in Jesus Christ, who is, after all, our model of behaviour? And what we see in him is something very similar. He's despised, he was rejected, his visage was more marred than any man. He suffered from exclusion. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. And in so many ways he was a bit different to the rest of his society and he was pushed aside for a lot of those reasons. And yet, he talked with Samaritans, he ate with publicans, he listened to women, he made friends of prostitutes, he touched lepers. 
He reached out to the people on the edges. He did what he could to make sure that people who spent their whole lives being despised or just feeling insignificant got their time with him and felt loved by him. And this is what we have to do and this is who we have to be. We have to be the kind of people who see these needs and meet them. And I'm not necessarily talking about that large-scale national stuff. I'm not talking about necessarily organised things like soup kitchen and and writing checks for World Vision. All that, that stuff is great. What I'm trying to say is that it has to start with human connections and it has to start with the people who are right here in front of us, the lonely guy in the corner after the meeting, old people who are just looking for someone to talk to, visitors. What about the... How are people going to perceive our community when they visit us for the first time? They're going to judge us on a lot of bases. And I can tell you right now that one of the primary ones is how welcomed do they feel? Not necessarily the quality of the talks or how good the singing was, although they might notice these things. What is really going to make the difference is how welcomed does a stranger feel when they walk through our doors? And we've got to do this even if they're the kind of people who make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Touch lepers if that's what it takes. Because, and I want to look up and have a little bit of a look at Matthew chapter 25 here um, as I'm bringing things to a close. Because if we can't show compassion to the people who are right in front of us, then what we learn in Matthew 25 is that we haven't done it to Christ either. And this parable, and I'm not going to go through the details of it, but it's quite simple. We've got two different categories of people. They are the people that Jesus says, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink, in verse 35. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous category of people said, I don't even remember doing that. I don't even remember meeting you, Jesus. Like, when, did, when did we do this? I don't actually, I have no memory of this. And Jesus Christ says, well, because you did it to these my little ones, therefore you did it to me as well. And then he turns to the other category of people and he says, we didn't do any of these things, right? I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. And they said, what are you talking about? Of course we welcomed you. Like, of course we did these things. That's a ridiculous thing to say. And Jesus says, yeah, but... You didn't do it to any of them. And what this highlights is that this part of this human condition is this pick-and-choose approach that we can take to the people upon whom we will bestow the grace of our company uh, or you know, the, the, the grace of uh, a little bit of love. right? And it can be pick-and-choose. And we pick the ones that we think are going to give us a payoff and we reject the ones that we think are not. Jesus says, lend even if you think you're not going to get anything back. The point of all this, if we don't show it to these, the least of Christ's brethren, then we make Christ into the stranger that we turn away. So is there a limit to this? If I am to love the stranger, how much love and to what extent? And I want to finish here in Ephesians chapter 2 because... Uh, the Apostle Paul picks up on this language as well. 
And if you're ever in any kind of doubt that you have been, or whether or not you have been a recipient of this kind of love, then hopefully this passage will leave you in no doubt at all. Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's, that's you and I, right? Gentiles in the flesh. Remember that at one time you, in verse 12, were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is us, right? This is We were strangers. We had no hope. We didn't have God. We had nothing. We were strangers from the, the people that God wants to create. We didn't belong. But in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God. So it's changed. You're no longer strangers. We were once strangers. We were once aliens. We were once on the outer. We were once left out. But this has changed. We're no longer strangers. We are a part of something. We are fellow citizens of the house of God. We who were once strangers have been brought in. How did this happen? The answer is, of course, is Jesus Christ. Verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So to go back to that question, how much should we love the stranger? Well, perhaps we can see part of that answer here. God loved the stranger so much that he sent his son to die for them.